greetings this evening in the name of the Lord. I've been looking forward to coming here for some time. I must confess that uh, usually the 24 hours preceding the start of meetings, there's a certain degree of trepidation that, that uh, one experiences, but the Lord's grace is sufficient. So I'm glad to be worshiping with you, looking forward to learn to know you better. Uh, I do serve at the Sharon Mennonite Fellowship, which is in Lebanon County. We live in northern Berks County, uh, just north of Interstate 78, uh, straight north from Lancaster, about an hour's drive on 501, if you're familiar with that part of the country. My wife Nancy couldn't be here. She's been a first grade school teacher for, I think this is the 14th year. Uh, she has 18 first graders this year. And she is pretty particular about getting a substitute the first three months. Uh, as a matter of fact, she downright refuses it, even when she's not feeling well. Because she feels strongly that first graders should not have too many disturbances. And so that's why she's not here. Oldest daughter is still at home. She's 42. She's uh, also a school teacher. She teaches English uh, at the same school, 7 through 12. And then we have two sons and a daughter. We have 12 grandchildren. Oldest one is 17, the youngest one is three, and there's another one on the way. And then one of the grandchildren is a special grandson, grandson with Down syndrome. And we have just tremendously learned to enjoy him and to love him. It's been a, been a tremendous blessing to our family. To uh, keep a little bread and butter on the table. I work at sales, and uh, that's so much about me. Uh, if you have any more questions, don't be afraid to ask. I didn't come here to talk about me, but I figured you probably had some questions. Uh, I'm going to start out each evening uh, with uh, reviewing a hymn, uh, and I'm going to review the history of a hymn each evening. I'm going to ask our song leader then to lead us in the hymn, and I'm going to try real hard not to pop any surprises on him. Uh, the, song, the songs are all going to be familiar hymns. The one I'm going to review tonight, which I'm going to ask the song leader to lead then, is in uh, Abide With Me. It's in the hymnal, page uh, 210, I believe it is. This uh, hymn was written by Henry Francis Light, and he felt that... Um, Someday he was going to write something immortal, something that would have a lasting effect on the lives of people. However, from his youth on up, he was, he was crippled with, uh, with uh, the ravages of, of tuberculosis. And so this is, that was a lifelong struggle for him. Life was not easy for him. Uh, he was raised in a poverty-stricken home. Uh, but he had a desire to do something for the Lord, and so he studied for the ministry, and uh, at uh, age 21, he had his first small church that he pastored, and it was difficult for him to do so, but uh, he tried to fulfill that faithfully. Uh, there were times that because of his inability to uh, fulfill the responsibilities that most pastors can fill, it, it created some dissensions within the church, and uh, even at one point, the choir refused to sing. And uh, 
I thought, well, they must have had some problems similar to Mennonites. Uh, uh, at least I've never heard anybody, however, that refused to sing as a group, maybe as individuals. But anyway, he served a number of years. He finally felt that he needed to move away from the uh, northern Irish climate, which was damp and wet, and move further south. He, uh, he had served at this congregation for 24 years. And in 1847, he, uh, uh, September 4th, I believe, September 4th, 1847, he administered uh, the communion service for the last time. And that evening he went down, or that morning after the service, he went down by the rocks, by the ocean, and sat there for a long time. And uh, he sat there and meditated, and finally he came home, and he went to his room, and when he... Uh, came out of his room, he had, he had composed this hymn. And as he uh, shared, uh, he shared all eight verses with his family, and of course you're familiar with it, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh abide with me. And so the following day then he, uh, he left and moved uh, to southern France, and uh, however, that didn't help his health issues. Uh, as a matter of fact, his health seemed to deteriorate, and two months later, he passed away at age 45. And on his tombstone is part of, of the song. Heaven's morning breaks, and earth's dawn, earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. And it was for years after that, this... Uh, this song has been used for, for centuries. As a matter of fact, this song was used at the wedding of Queen Elizabeth II. So uh, this is a song that has blessed many, and I'm going to ask the song leader to lead us in that song. Number 210. Oh, abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide, when Help the 
instead of the five that we're familiar with. All right, for uh, messages this week, it's always a struggle to uh, discern what the Lord wants. Uh, I've never come to the place, I've had meetings a number of times that I felt comfortable with always repeating the same messages, and so I uh, just have never done that. So. The Lord was, I've been spending a number of time, months in prayer to discern what the Lord wants me to preach, and then I like to get zeroed in on it, and so I like to know in advance what the Lord wants. And So I've decided to uh, bring a series of messages this week on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We look at this portion of Scripture. This is the longest discourse or sermon that our Lord ever preached. It is in this discourse that we see a code of ethics for Christ's kingdom on earth or principles of conduct. This is not for some future millennial code, but a standard of behavior for God's people today. Now, one of the common methods of evading the difficulties of this discourse is to project it into some future millennium. And there's many that have attempted that because they said it's impossible to live this way. However, if that is true, then why were they told to be peacemakers in chapter five, verse nine? Apparently, there's still some strife present. Why were they told to be a light to the world in Matthew 5, 14? So apparently there's still some darkness present. Why did he teach them to pray, lead us not into temptation in chapter 6, verse 13? So apparently 
the devil is still present. And why were they told to fast? Also in chapter 6. Apparently, they were still anticipating and waiting for something in the future. The key word for the book of Matthew is kingdom. The word kingdom is found 55 times. The phrase kingdom of heaven is found 32 times. And so we have in focus the kingdom of God on earth. Each gospel writer presents a different portrait of Jesus. John, the only begotten. Luke, the son of God. Mark, a servant. But Matthew calls him a king. So the Sermon of the Mount, I believe, is uh, portrays to us the ethics of kingdom people today. And so tonight's message I've entitled The Character of Kingdom People. And we're going to try to look at Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get everything covered, but by the grace of God, I want to try to. In verse 1, Matthew 5, 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. We see that Jesus saw the multitudes. This tells us something about the character of Jesus. He was moved by just the sheer amount of people. He had compassion for people. We also know that his disciples came. And it appears that this message was primarily for his disciples, but yet we recognize that it was intended for more than just the disciples. But we do know that the crowd followed him, because in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, and when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So apparently he had quite an extensive audience. The scripture doesn't tell us how many. We notice that the setting was a mountain, and hence we have the title, The Sermon of the Mount. And uh, the interesting comparison that we have of this mount versus the Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is where the law was given, the Ten Commandments were given on a mountain, and we see that the, when the law was given, God came down and the people were ordered to keep their distance. But for the Sermon of the Mount, the people drew near to hear what Jesus had to tell them. And my prayer is tonight that even though Jesus isn't here verbalizing this, my prayer is, is that we recognize that these are the words of Jesus and that we recognize that he is here in spirit and that we draw nigh to him this week and we take heed to his word and to his truth, and by the grace of God, become responsive, as our brother indicated, to the truth of the word of God. And so in verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them. This was not a yawn of indifference, but he preached what God had him to say. The Sermon on the Mount is, is perhaps the greatest insight into the mind of Jesus. As we look at what he teaches, we can discover what makes our Lord tick, what his inner desire is for his people. And this was not a monotonous lecture. In, in Matthew 7, 
verses uh, 28 and 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, And came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, they were used to hearing public instruction, but it was apparently somehow it was just kind of a monotonous routine without much motivation and probably not much uh, life behind it. And, but they were moved. They, they noticed that this was something different. Uh, the Greek brings out the ideas that they were stricken with amazement. They were, they were surprised at the content and the power of his message. And he taught them. He taught them the things of God. Uh, I believe it, it, was, it was inspirational, doctrinal instruction. And, you know, I believe that's something that the preachers of today need to pattern. Inspirational, doctrinal instruction. We don't have to be turned off by doctrine. We don't have to be turned away by it, but we can be inspired by it. And certainly, as we look at the teachings of Jesus, it prods us to recognize our need to be responsive to the will of God for our lives. And so in verses 3 to 12, then, we have what's called the Beatitudes, or we could say attitudes that be, attitudes uh, that are part of our character. And we notice also that blessed are, we find that nine times, not blessed shall be, but blessed are. And so it, it refers to character. Uh, a beatitude is a, is a fixed character trait, an attitude that is, that exists. Not what a Christian is, or not, not what a Christian sh uh, uh, shall become, but what he is. And as we look in the Word of God this week, Lord, may, may we be challenged by the Lord's truth and what he has for us. These are not promises to the Christians, but a profile of what the Christian is. It has to do with our character. And that's why I call it the character of kingdom people. We notice also that he uses the word blessed uh, numerous times. Blessed is a, a fixed uh, a fixed state of joy. And, and I prefer to call it happiness plus. Saints that are Walking with God are blessed. They, they're experiencing happiness plus. Uh, happiness is never arrived without, uh, without first dealing with our attitudes. I think all of us have had enough of life's experience that if our attitudes aren't under the grace of God and under, under the control of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's difficult to be happy unless you're different than I am. But there, there's times that I need to come to the foot of the cross. I need to deal with my attitude. And when I find that grace to repent of that attitude that was beginning to affect my character, I can again find the joy of the Lord. I can experience happiness plus. And so if we're blessed in this fixed uh, state of joy, uh, our, our emotions are, are not going to be un undergoing a constant emotional fluctuation. I recognize there's various personality traits. Some people seem to be born to be calm, cool, and collective, and, and other people are very, very excitable, even over the littlest things. However, I do believe that when we have the character of Jesus 
in our hearts and our minds, I believe it has a stabilizing effect upon our emotions and how we respond to life, in, uh, life issues. True happiness begins within. It never begins without. All of us have tried that already, haven't we? But it doesn't, that's not where it starts. Happiness depends on character rather than the circumstances of life. You know, we've probably all had this huge wish list about what we could have in life or what we could have. But that doesn't provide true happiness. And I'm sure you've met many individuals that way. So we see eight characteristics here of kingdom people. Uh, I'm going to give a quick overview of them, and then I will go into more detail. Uh, We notice that these characteristics are progressive in nature. I believe it depicts to us uh, moving from a time of spiritual birth to maturity. The first one is humility, a conscious need of God. That's where it needs to begin, a conscious need of God. Humility is the foundation stone that all Christian graces spring from. And so we need to have that humility to recognize that I need God, to recognize that I can't hoe my own road. And then there's mourning, that is sorrow for sin. And we have meekness. Meekness, I believe, marks the birth of a new spirit. It, it, it marks the renewal of the mind, the recreation of the mind, the regeneration of the heart. And then hunger for righteousness, a spiritual appetite. And this spiritual appetite signifies growth, signifies maturity. And then merciful. Merciful is an attribute of of God. When we come to the place of being merciful, we are advancing into the very likeness of God himself. And then purity. Purity is an even higher altitude of holiness. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, is what the Hebrew writer says. Without purity of life, we cannot be holy. And then the ninth one is, a peacemaker, the character of our Father, our Heavenly Father, a Christ-like influence on others. We can face the storm of life without being washed overboard. We have, when we're peacemakers, there's a calmness that rules our soul regardless of the circumstances of life. And then finally, the suffering for Christ. This is the summit of Christian maturity. And I'm convinced that I've not arrived there. As a matter of fact, I'm not too sure that there are Christians in North America that can actually say that because God has blessed us with the privilege of living in a nation where we have face little, relatively little persecution. And so I'm not sure we fully understand what it means to suffer for Christ, but I believe this is the summit of Christian maturity because those who suffer with Christ are standing beside the prophets and standing beside the martyrs. In the Beatitudes, we see a self-image that is rooted 
in the grace of Christ and not in our own self-worth. All right, the first point I'd like to look at a little closer as we look at the Beatitudes is humility. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, the world has a warped concept of happiness. Their concept of happiness, blessed are the rich. Those who are poor in spirit do not possess a superstar or celebrity mentality. They are humble about themselves and who they are. A person who is poor in spirit is a person who recognizes his need to depend upon God, to recognize that he's utterly dependent upon God for everything. He is one one who is poor in spirit, is ready to identify his need before God and to confess his need before God and to cry out for grace. A person who is poor in spirit is one who is willing to humble themselves before their God and allow him through the Holy Spirit, to be ruled by God. And therefore, we find ourselves in ready submission to the will of God. And not only that, we find ourselves in ready submission to all of God's delegated authorities. A person who is poor in spirit is someone who possesses a broken will, a broken and a contrite heart, the psalmist says, thou wilt not despise. Someone who has a broken spirit Uh, who is poor in spirit is a person who is pliable, flexible. Uh, A person who is poor in spirit can accept himself without resentment. Can Can accept God's sovereignty in his life and can accept that this is the way God has made me and I can accept myself joyfully. As a matter of fact, I've said already that suicidal tendencies come from a wrong view of self. A wrong view of self. Just recently, I was talking to a minister who, uh, in their congregation, they had a young man who, uh, who posted a note on Facebook. Well, it was more than a note. It was kind of a lengthy little article. But in essence, it was a suicide threat. Life wasn't worth living, and he was going to do something about it soon. A brother in that congregation happened to see this note and saw who it was posted by, and he did the right thing. He went to this young man and and went to help him. What can I do to help? And after a period of discussion, this young man confessed I put it there merely to get attention. You see, he had a wrong view of himself. He was looking for, for, for attention. And so as we think about self-acceptance without resent, resentment, when a person, uh, well, let's think of it in this way, what, what, what being poor in spirit is not. Being poor in spirit is not a, a, a self-depreciation of yourself, a criticism of yourself. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we, we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good person. I, I'm a bad person. 
or, or somebody wants to give us an honest compliment and we brush it off, oh, that's nothing. Uh, you know, that kind of self-depreciation, I believe, is pride in reverse. Pride in reverse. Are we broken in spirit? Some of the proudest people cannot accept honest compliments. Some of the proudest people dislike themselves. You know, when it comes to this matter of humility, humility is not to think lowly about ourselves. Humility is not to think about ourselves at all. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Have I, have I come to the place in my walk with God where I can take the focus off of myself? That's a challenge. That's a real challenge. And I'm going to admit to you, we need the grace of God in our hearts to accomplish that. That is not done by human energy. In the latter part of verse 3, it says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 4, it says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very clear that those who walk humbly before their God, that God is going to exalt them to some lofty altitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not shall be, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I believe it, it refers both to the present and to the future. And so we must have a poverty of disposition before we can be possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's not some future time. It's now. It is the atmosphere we create when we have a humble attitude about ourselves. All right, the, the, the next one I want to look at is, is mourning. We see that in verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn. To mourn means to be penitent, to be sorrowful, to grieve for sin, to have a burden of soul. And, and I've said already, and this is a concern to me, where, where has the generation gone that grieves over sin? We, we recognize it's out there in the world. We recognize that. It's, it always has been. That always will be that way. But when it comes to sin within the church, within the body of Christ, within our family, where is the generation that grieves for sin? Mourning involves grieving for sin. The ability to mourn for that which is wrong, which is not godlike. You know, if our, if our prayer meetings become a backslapping social event, we've lost our burden. And I trust that that's not where you're at. But I've been at some places already where I went away with a burden because I felt this lighthearted attitude about the things of God, things that really mattered. And so are we mourning? We notice there in the latter part of that verse 4, for they shall be comforted. And the Greek means they shall be called near. When we have a burden for sin, we will be called near. I remember a number of years back, my youngest son was going through a, several years of rebellion, and it was a grief and a burden to my wife. 
And there's many a time we spend in prayer and in brokenness. And I remember one Sunday afternoon that my burden was so heavy, I went in the woods behind our house, I went for a long walk. And shortly after I went out, there was a heavy downpour of rain that just didn't let up. But I'll tell you what, I came in refreshed and renewed in God because he comforts us when we mourn. He comforts us when we have burdens about our family or a relative or a neighbor or somebody in church. Do we have that burden? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us all in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, and by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. The blessing of being comforted gives us the grace to comfort others. Blessed are they that mourn. The third one I'd like to look at is meekness. Again, this is not a character trait that you're going to find in a carnal person or in the natural man. It, it's not something that comes naturally. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the mild and the gentle. Before I was a Christian, I was not a very mild and not very gentle person. And, you know, I confess that I still need some help to overcome some of those tendencies and those traits of my Freundschaft those things that were born in me, but I can't use those things for an excuse. I need to have a meek disposition about myself. And meekness is not weakness. As a matter of fact, meekness belongs to strong people, people who are strong in the Lord. Someone who is meek is a person who knows by the grace of God on how to control their responses even though if you were come from a family that's been known to be quick on the trigger. God can work a grace in your heart and life. And when I became converted, one of the first things that I had victory over was my anger problem. And I was amazed that when the Lord helped me to deal with that thing, how my friendships expanded. A person who is meek is not someone who reacts thoughtlessly but rather he responds in a gentle way. He's not hostile towards others. 2 Timothy 2.24, it says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men. And so that's a character trait that needs to be present in our life. Meekness, I believe, if a person is meek, there's going to be the absence of strife in our lives. You, you just simply cannot strive with a meek person. You, you just, you can't push him over the edge. He has this grace in his heart. May not always have a smile, but he's going to have this grace in his heart that you're never going to be able to find out where his hot button is. He's going to have responses that are meek. Jesus said about himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. A character trait that we need to copy. Latter part of verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Now we know that the earth belongs to the Lord, but here we have the promise that those who are meek shall inherit the earth. 
And the reason such inherit the earth is because they have become partakers of God's godlike character. The fourth point is spiritual hunger in verse 6. Blessed are, the, are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. For they shall be filled. Proper appetites. How is it with us? How are our appetites? Are our appetites for the things of the kingdom of God? The word hunger here in the Greek is the idea of craving, having a craving, having a craving for spiritual things, having a craving for righteousness, not for filet mignon, not for pizza, not for a piece of chocolate cake with peanut butter icing on. That's not where our cravings should be. We may like them, but they, they're not. Our, our cravings ought to be righteousness, personal righteousness. Do we have that craving for ourselves? Do we feel the, the, the hunger pangs for personal righteousness? To be more like Christ. Do we have that daily burden? We wake up in the morning hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 31, I open my mouth and paint it for I long for thy commandments. You know, the sign of good health is hunger, physically speaking. And I've always been healthy. I give the Lord credit for that. But I, I confess that I, I also struggle sometimes with controlling my hunger. But pray to God that we would have the same kind of hunger for righteousness. That craving, that desire like we have for food. And I'm absolutely convinced that when we crave for that righteousness, we're going to be healthy spiritually. Someone once said that Bibles are falling up, that are falling apart belong to people who are not falling apart. I believe the Word of God, as we hunger and thirst after His righteousness, are going to contribute to our spiritual health. And revival meetings are intended to be a time to check our spiritual health. And so, brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves tonight. Let's not be looking at our neighbor. Let's look at ourselves. Now our part of verse 6, for they shall be filled. A promise. A healthy spiritual desire is going to result in Christ-like maturity and righteousness. We must keep ourselves filled if we want to mature into Christ-likeness. The fifth point is merciful. In verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Merciful means to be, have compassion for others, to have empathy, to feel for them, to have an irresistible love for those who are down and out, downtrodden, those who don't know the Lord. A merciful person zeroes in on the needs of others. His personal priorities become secondary to the needs of others. Are we there? Am I there? Or do we think first of ourselves? That's the tendency. I recognize that. But we need to be merciful people. 
like Jesus was. And if we're merciful, verse 7, it says, they shall obtain mercy. Your own personal need will eventually be met. Put that on the background. Zero in on the needs of others. And as you zero in on the needs of others, you're going to be blessed. And your own needs are going to become secondary. And God is going to meet them in his own way, in his own time. It's so interesting to see how when we focus on the needs of others, how the warped sense of self-worth disappears when we focus on other people instead of myself. Proverbs eleven seventeen: The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. That's simply saying the birds do come home to roost. If we're going to be merciful, we can expect to experience mercy. mercy. But if we're not merciful, we can expect the same in return. The law of sowing and reaping is something we cannot get away from. And so are we merciful? The seventh or the sixth point is purity. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. First Timothy 5, 22, it says, keep thyself pure. This is not a suggestion, but a command. Are we free from any form of contamination? You know, when we take salt and sugar and you mix just a few grains of salt with sugar, you no longer have, even though most of it is sugar, you no longer have a, a pure, you know, you, it's, the sugar is no longer pure. And I believe the same is true when it comes to our relationship with the things of this world. When we add those things that are worldly into our lives, we are no longer pure. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And there's probably many applications to be made to that, and I'm not going to go there. I'm going to let you and the Holy Spirit work that out. But we lose our purity when we have even just a little bit of the world. And I recognize that is very difficult because we have the world all around us. But the Bible is very clear that we may be in the world, but we are not of the world. And so we can be pure. Purity is to have sincere intentions, to have unmixed desires, to have consecrated affection for the things of God. To be pure in heart, I believe, is an internal character quality that we can only receive through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you're just going to work up yourself. But the promise here is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart and life helps us to maintain an unclouded vision of God. And when we keep our lives pure, we can have a confidence and a faith that is unmovable, it is firm, it is fixed. This purity of heart and life refreshes life daily, and it helps us to go forth with confidence and with assurance. They shall see God. And that's not only talking about future, but that's talking about the present. When we are pure in heart, we shall see God. 
You know, why is it? Why is it that some folks have such difficulty sensing the nearness of God? Ask yourself that question. Are you struggling with sensing God's nearness in your daily walk? Maybe we need to examine how pure our lives really are. If our heart becomes mixed and contaminated in the slightest way, our relationship with God is directly affected. The seventh point is a peacemaker. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not pieces makers, it's peacemakers. There's a distinct difference. Some Christians are demolition experts. Some Christians are, are aces when it comes to causing contention in the church and causing splits. They, they seem to be good at it. They move from congregation to congregation and cause dissension wherever they go. But when we have the character of Christ, we are going to be peacemakers. In other words, the word maker refers to being a creator, a peace creator. Are you, am I, a peace creator? That means not to take apart, but to put back together. So Christians not only have a personal peace, but they find others. They help others to find peace. Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. A peacemaker is a person who makes a deliberate, conscious effort not to offend others. And that may be difficult, but it's our calling as peacemakers. The Apostle Paul refrained from eating meat the rest of his life so that he doesn't offend those who felt it was wrong to eat meat. How would you like to make that kind of commitment, young fellows? No hamburger the rest of my life because I don't want to offend someone else. Well, maybe you're not going to face that, but it's just as real in other areas of life. And so am I willing to be a peacemaker to give up those little things that really shouldn't be that important for the sake of my brother and sister? And you know, that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of congregational life. How much do I really care about my brother and sister and their concerns? Yeah, I know, I've been there. I know what it's like. Sometimes we think they're a little nitpicky. But how far are you ready to go to be a peacemaker? Or do you prefer being a pieces maker? Latter part of that verse says, For they shall be called the children of God. Why? Because they manifest the very nature and the likeness of their heavenly Father. Did you ever see a young person that you didn't know, but you took one look at them and you knew what for family they came from? I mean, just the way they talked, the way they acted, and the way they looked. They were the children of their father, that's why. And the same thing works with us spiritually. When we have the peace of Christ in our hearts and lives, and that becomes a, 
a, an ambition, a desire, it becomes a character trait. The character trait of our Father. That's why we're called the children of God. And so the observers of our life ought to be able to identify what family we belong to. They ought to be able to identify that person belongs to the family of God, a peacemaker. The eighth one is suffering. That's verses 10 to 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is the reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The word revile here means to defame, means to insult. The sign of a mature relationship in Christ is to be able to endure persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we find some very interesting verses. Verses 19 through 21. 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is thankworthy or commendable if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, ye shall take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. But notice verse 21. It says, for even hereunto are ye called. For even on, unto, for even unto, hereunto were ye called. The Christian's calling is to expect suffering, to expect persecution. I would go so far as to say, that we do not live in normal times here in North America, since this is the norm for Christianity. Persecuted is the expected norm. It's important for us to recognize that we have no inherent rights. Since we have no inherent rights, when we're reproached, we can hold our peace. When we're treated violently, we can endure it patiently. We won't make a scene when we're suffering an injustice. And brothers and sisters, again, this takes the grace of God in our hearts. It's not something you're going to do on your own energy. And in verse 10, this, this seems like such a paradox. Those who renounce their rights are going to rule the kingdom of heaven. Look at that verse again. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't even seem possible or probable. But yet, it's the word of God. True Christian character condemns worldly living, and will stir up opposition. 
Christian character causes persecution. And so as I live in the world, I need to examine my life. If nobody ever reacts to my testimony, if nobody ever reacts to my testimony, I would say, brother, sister, you need to examine your life. And, I, and I'm saying that to myself. Because your character tells them something. Your character tells them that theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. Your character tells them they shall not be comforted. Your character tells them they shall not inherit the kingdom of uh, inherit the earth. Your character tells them they shall not be satisfied. Your character tells them they shall not obtain mercy. Your character tells them they shall not see God. And so we can expect persecution. We can expect that. He says there in verse 11, letter part, and ye shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. For my sake, Christ is the cause. Christ is the cause for those kinds of responses. His indwelling presence. And when we remember the cause, suffering becomes insignificant because we finally have to look at the life of Christ and look at the suffering he endured in our behalf. And the little bit of persecution we face becomes insignificant. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer says, consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners. And then the verse, next verse goes on and implies that we can experience healing when we consider the suffering of Christ. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Our forefathers... We have the testimony recorded that even to their death, even on, as they were on the bonfire or on the stake or prior to being drowned, their testimony was to praise God. Rejoice. Exceedingly rejoice, not just a little. And so brothers and sisters, happy are the harassed. If you're being harassed for the cause of Christ, rejoice. Rejoice. And this happiness, as I implied earlier, is not dependent upon circumstances. If persecution ever comes, it will separate those who are blessed and those who are not blessed. Verse 12, for great is their reward in heaven. There is guaranteed reward for those who are persecuted. Special mention is made of that in Revelations 20, verse 4. Also says, therefore, so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When we are persecuted, we identify with holy company. The kingdom of heaven and character people. How does your life look as we compare it? to the word of God and to the teachings of Jesus. I'm not going to give an invitation tonight. I trust that each of us will heed the truth of the word of the Lord, search our hearts, and come back again this week.
looking for how we can grow in his grace. I am going to close with a poem. This poem is entitled, The Question. Were the whole world good as you and not an atom better? Were it just as pure and true, just as pure and true as you? Just as strong in faith and works? Just as free from crafty quirks? All extortion, all deceit? Schemes its neighbor to defeat? Schemes its neighbors to defraud? Schemes some culprit to applaud? Would this world be better? If the whole world followed you, followed to the letter, would it be a nobler world, all deceit and falsehood hurled? From it altogether, malice, selfishness, and lust, banished from beneath the crust, covering human hearts from you, tell me, if it followed you, would this world be better? Let's stand for closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teachings of Jesus. And we realize that by skimming over this evening that we've only, we've only uncovered the surface. And we just pray, Lord, that you might help each of us to open ourselves to the truth of the Word of God. Help us, dear Father, to allow the Spirit of the living God to prod us to the type of life that Jesus could call blessed. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight that needs to get right with you, needs to repent, we pray that they would make it known or that they would drop by their bedside or they would get into their closet and cry out, for you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this coming week. We recognize that we're of the flesh and that human weaknesses do beset us, but we also realize that your word can give us the grace to be overcomers and to be victors on this side of eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.